They are dismissed to their classes. You can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And we'll be looking at verses 22 through 24. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, we've just sang, thank you. Thank you that your blood washes away our sin. And as we will see again in the text, that sin that so separates us from you, we'll see the result of sin and the removal of man and woman from the garden. We'll see the impact of sin in our world. May this again remind us of why we cry out, Jesus, thank you. And that the wrath of God was completely satisfied. Thank you that your blood, when it was spilled, accomplished what it was sent to do. To redeem mankind. So, dearly Father, thank you. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. One of the lines, if you have uh, interacted with teenagers, if you've interacted with kids of all different age and size, whether you're a parent, whether you work in schools or whatever, many times when the authority says this is what we need to do, many times the response can be, Oh, come on, do we have to? Usually it's said not in an encouraging, yay, we get to. And then usually I really enjoy looking. One of the things I enjoyed is I taught phys ed, and I would tell them today, uh, we're going to run the mile, and they would all go, oh, come on, do we have to? I said, no, we get to. It's an enjoyable thing we get to do. Or you hear the other phrase, come on, what's the big deal? Why does it really matter? You know, you say this, and what's really the big deal? What's... Why does it matter in the big scheme of things if I do this or if I do that? Sadly, many of these questions come, if we're honest, from a place of ignorance of the real danger, the real situation, because why do we have to do this? And the answer is because you don't understand the big picture. Uh, One of the reasons, if you've ever tried to get insurance for a teenager, you'll realize insurance companies least understand that your teenager does not know what they're doing, whether you as a parent think they do or not. The insurance company says... They are ignorant fools, that's why it will cost this much money, because they don't understand how fast fast really is. And when it comes even to the passage of Scripture that we're going to look about today, now we're going to look at this, we may be tempted to say, what's really the big deal about Adam and Eve staying in the Garden of Eden? I mean, why do they have to get kicked out? And my prayer is that you will see as we look through this text, we will see God's great grace, mercy, and kindness in actually kicking man out of the paradise, that you will not see it as a negative thing. Actually, God is gracious and kind by removing him from paradise. My prayer is you start to see the drama unfolding. You start to see what's going on in Scripture here. You start to see the struggle that now we're going to see going on. You're going to start to see the living picture until the flood of what's happening in this world. You're going to see it by God's grace as we move forward. So that's why the title of the message today is Paradise Lost. So let's look at Genesis 3, 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Now I want to remind you again as we look at this passage here and we, we, we start to see the themes of Genesis, we were going to remind ourselves of the theme that we've talked about and it's seen through all of Genesis that everything God does is perfect and completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish everything He has decreed. And now as we look at today's passage, there's a couple of things I want to make sure we understand as we see what we will see in today's passage. Remember, we live in this world and we live as people of time and space and God when he interacts with mankind interacts with man in time and space turn with your in your Bibles to Isaiah 46 verse 10 it's a very important passage to make sure we understand Isaiah 46 verse 10 Let's start at verse 8, and then we'll go to 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Again, this is where we get that reminder of our statement that I just said, that God has literally declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that hadn't even been done yet, He declared that they would take place. And He also said, what will stand? His counsel. When He determines something, it will stand. And He says, there is nothing that's going to keep me from accomplishing what He has set out to do. Now, as we look at the Scripture like that, we have to make sure we also understand that God in His Word has told us that the decisions we make have eternal and lasting consequences. And that as we make decisions, and as these decisions are made, they do not thwart the purpose of God. And His decree will stand. And so I want to make sure we don't run to, because what we like to do is run to fatalism and say, well, if God already planned it, it doesn't matter what's going to happen. The Bible clearly teaches across the board that the decisions we make have eternal and lasting consequences. Yet at the same time, it also says that God's eternal plan will carry out, that you cannot thwart God's plan. And so when we see today's passage... If we're not careful, we're tempted to look at this passage as, sadly, not what the passage is saying. What we do not have is the Trinity having a moment of really great forward thinking after plan A had failed. Because if we're not careful, we can read this and it make it sound like, oh great, everything happened here. We need to have a reconvening council and to make sure that nothing really goes bad here. What we have is that God is, in a way, as we would, I'd like to say, God is condescending and speaking on terms we understand. What we see here is this happened, and God is saying, since that has happened, this is going to happen. Not because God did not foresee it happening, nor did He decree it, but what we see is God acting in time and space and saying, because of the fall of man, we are going to do this. This is not a God acting like He does not know what's happening, or God trying to cover up something before something really bad happens. But because we live in time and space, we see God interacting in time and space as well. So let's look at what we see happening here. Notice it says, the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever. What we're going to see is God's protection over man. God protects Adam and Eve from this devastating possibility. We're going to see some issues going on. I wrote them down as problems. They're not really problems, but we speak in the word of problem. The first thing we see 
is that man knows good and evil. Notice what it says there. It's interesting because as we read through it, it says they now know good and evil and they've become like us. And we say they become like us. This does not mean that man has become God. What it means is man now has an interaction with good and evil like God also interacts with good and evil, but in a totally different way. So let's walk through this. How does man know? What we see is man knows evil, but now from within. Adam has sinned and he now knows evil that he did not know before. And as man now knows evil, we see that evil now, we'll find out quickly what happens in his knowledge of evil. But God does know evil, but in a way of saying it, he knows it from without, because God cannot sin, but he does know what good is, and he does know what evil is, because he literally gives us his commanding law, and he understands good and evil, but from without, because he is holy. Adam now has understood evil from a same category of knowing what is good and evil, but we have found that the evil that he does know now is enslaving him. Because the Bible tells us in John eight thirty four, whoever sins is a slave to that sin. And so now Adam, his interaction with good and evil finds that the thing that he so desired, the thing that he so wanted, he's going to see that now that understanding of evil is going to drive him and that evil is going to drive him away from God. This is where we start to understand the idea of man's depravity and that man by nature is a sinner. That he is going to see good and evil and he is going to see that the slaving and power of evil is the thing that will enslave him now. This is why when the law comes in, the law does not cause anyone to obey. The law exposes man's sinfulness. And it's interesting, we live in a day and age where we think that if we just add one more law, that's going to solve everything. And the problem is that it doesn't solve anything. All, that, all laws do is expose, once again, our own sinful heart. But we can, we can fall prey to this to think if only we had one more law, then crime would stop. Or if only we had one more law, then this would go until we realize that man is evil from the very core. It's interesting. When we live in a world where there is lawbreakers, it doesn't matter how many laws you put on the books, lawbreakers still break laws. Uh, there hasn't been a crime yet committed that there wasn't a law that said you couldn't do that. All right. So when, we, when someone gets murdered and they say, if only we had more in the blank, well, the person who was the murderer did not care about law anyway, and they went. And so we're going to see that now that man knows evil, that evil is going to drive him. And the second problem we see here, because now that man knows evil, but he knows it in a totally different way, yet in the same way they understand good and evil, he, this evil is going to drive him to do wrong. And now, second issue is, Will man be like this in this sinful state permanently? Because what has happened here? Remember, the day you eat of this, you will surely die. Adam and Eve have seen, because of their sin, the death of an animal. And what we see in front of us here, that man has seen God kill an animal in order to clothe them. And then we have this tree that is not any special tree because of its own 
internal botany. It's a tree that has the power of eternal life because literally God has decreed that this tree has that. All right, let's make sure we're clear on this. There's not like some mystical fruit rolling around out there. The tree of life is a tree of life because God said this tree will be the tree of life and you eat of this, you will live if you do. And it's just what it is. All right. And so we want to make sure we're careful not to mystify this, that somebody's going to find the seed somewhere and plant a tree of life or something. No, the tree of life is what it is because God had said this is the tree of life. But what we see here is that God in his wisdom and love knows that if mankind were to reach out and to grab this, he would be in this state of eternal wickedness forever, eternal evil forever. And so what does God do? Notice what the text says. It says it twice because it's building Verse 23, therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden. Verse 24, he drove him out of the garden. It's an interesting, as the Hebrew language here builds, to give you an idea, this is not God sitting here persuading Adam, hey, you know, it's really great outside the garden. What we have is here the sovereign God saying, you are gone out of the garden. A driving, not allowing Adam to know anything other than you are not allowed to be here. Adam, you are out. Because God knows the depravity of man's own heart and that if he does not drive him from the garden, even if he were to command him to not eat of the tree again, what will man do? He will eat of the tree. And so from man's own protection, he drives him out. You see this all along. One of the interesting things when I was getting my degree in physical education, they, they told us that there are things in the world called attractive nuisances. And you go, what's an attractive nuisance? It's the ball sitting in the gym by itself and no one around. And all of a sudden, you could put a ball in the middle of gym floor, no one around, and kids show up randomly, and then they do whatever they're going to do. We have some attractive nuisances even here. You look outside, there's an awful lot of dirt. All the little kids and all the little boys and all the little men, what's the attractive nuisance? We've just been told, don't do what? Go out in the dirt. But how many of you think that would be the greatest thing ever, to go out and start playing in the dirt? And then the wonderful thing about those attractive nuisances, the dirt gets all over us and we bring it in. We try to quick try to pretend like we weren't out playing in the dirt. But no matter how hard we try, no matter how we clean it up, what do we find? It's all over the place. Because Romans 3 reminds us that no one does good, no, not man. That man, if left to himself, will find, will never, man left to his own, will never find his way back to God. Man will continually drive away from God and towards sin, towards what is doing wrong. That's why God in His love says, you are driven from the garden because now your interaction with evil is causing you to be a slave of evil and all you will do is what is wrong and it's only a matter of time until you reach out in that permanent state. And in this driving him out, in point number two, man is sent out to work the ground. Notice what it says there. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. The garden was a place where the ground worked with and for man. Remember, we've talked about that. The garden is a place where the ground is literally bringing forth its fruit for man, and man is just interacting with it, enjoying it, and eating it. Now they are driven out of the garden. And this driving out of the garden is from man to work the ground to get food, the ground from when you came. 
Isn't it interesting as we look through the book of Genesis here, we will find after God destroys the earth with a flood, what are we going to find? Man is going to rebel, an idolatrous rebellion against God after the flood where they're going to collect themselves and say, we're going to make a huge tower to our own beauty and our own liking. And what do they use? Dirt to build this tower. As if we're going to rebel, this dirt that we're fighting over, we're going to rebel and make ourselves a name for ourselves. And I love the text there, and we get to, we'll just marvel at this, and it says, as they're building this tower to God, what does God do? He comes down to see their tower. I love how the Bible writes in that way. You think you're building a tower to me? You think you're great, and you think you're all this, man? What does God do? I love how Moses pens that, he says, and God came down to see the tower they were building. You puny man and how great God is that goal. And as we see these things played out in front of us, here again we see God saying to Adam and Eve, get to work. God knows in experience the effects of the fall, it's going to cause them to look for the redeemer. God knows in his beauty and his plan as we feel the effects of the fall in the way God has caused the effects of the fall to be on mankind, mankind will look for that Redeemer. Point number three here is that God is going to place a guard over the entrance. As we see here, this guard, he drove man out of the garden, and the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God places a guard over the entrance. Notice this. It's interesting what God does. God, again, knowing the thoughts and intentions of man, places a guard. And this guard is to guard the garden. And there is amazing beauty in here. There's amazing symbolism here that causes us to think through. There's even words that should cause us to pause as we read through this. As God is driving them out, we see Adam and Eve as they are going out. In my mind, I see the two of them walking out with their backs, obviously, to the garden as they're going. And as they leave, God placing a guard, a cherub, there to guard the entrance. And now notice, he, the guard is on the east side. Again, when God in His Word writes, these things are important for us to remember. What we're going to start to see here is some beauty between the tabernacle, the temple, and the Garden of Eden. As we start to see this, though, we need to make sure we understand the Garden of Eden was a reminder of, of our relationship with God and where God is. And so when we think about the Garden, we need to think about the dwelling place of God. Now, when we think about the tabernacle, we need to think about it as a symbol of the same dwelling place of God and our desire to get back to garden living. Because remember, this tree of life is going to be seen in Revelation and the beauty of the Gospel plan. And so what we're going to see here is that cherubim are going to guard the way back to the garden. And notice this word guard there. That word guard should cause us to say, hey, wait a minute, I've seen that before given to someone. If you go to Genesis 2.15, here's what you're going to see. Notice what it says here. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you shall... Oh, sorry, that was 16. 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it, and that word keep is to guard it. And so notice man has been kicked out and a new guard has been in place. Because man, when he had access to the tree, he rebelled against his creator. And this is why we need a new Adam. This is why we need someone to go into the garden and show us how to live. 
And it's interesting, not only that, but the cherub are placed in the way to guard entrance to back to God, to guard entrance to this holy place, if you want to put it that way. Anyone who enters into that garden because of the flaming sword must die. Because that flaming sword will come down on any man, any sinful man that is entering into the garden. But what we're going to see is when the tabernacle is built, the tabernacle, a reminder that one day we can have peace with God, a reminder of one day a Redeemer is going to come and atone for our sacrifice. Where is the entrance to the temple placed? To the east. And as you enter in, as the priest will enter in on the veil, the veil that was between the Holy of Holies there, what is on the veil that is between the Holy of Holies? Cherubim or on that veil. To remind us, you are, when you enter in there, this is why it was such a huge thing when God comes down and says to Moses, I'm going to make a day of atonement where one man will come and hear how he must ritually cleanse himself. And this priest is going to come in, this holy priest that has been sanctified, literally on his head will say, Holiness to the Lord, as he goes in. And the garments are all symbolism of just the beauty of this atoning work on the behalf of the Israelite nation. And he will go in one day following these strict requirements. And if he does not follow these strict requirements, he will die because what he is doing is entering the Holy of Holies to place a blood of another, another sacrifice, a spotless lamb to be placed on the altar to remind ourselves that in, when you go before holy God, you go on His terms and His terms alone. And the cherubim is right there on the veil reminding them of these things. And it's interesting, all of this is pointing to that one day when on a hill the perfect man will die. The perfect God-man, the God Himself, Jesus Christ, will die in order to bring us back from God. And that death was the perfect death. And what happened to the cherubim-covered veil? It is torn from the top to the bottom. The cherubim do not need to guard the way because there is the way now, Jesus Himself. And the beauty of all of this is starting to be seen because notice that flaming sword that is turning every way to guard the way to the tree of life, I would argue does fall on a man, but it is the perfect man, Jesus Himself. And we see the beauty of all of this being played out, that now there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Himself. And so, one of the reasons I believe this cherubim is there with a the flaming sword turning back and forth, it is not there to scare mankind. I really do believe one of the reasons that it is there, turn your Bible with me to 1 John 3.3, 3, and I think this is something we really need to make sure we grasp. In 1 John 3.3, 3, there's a beautiful thing about our sanctification here that is worked out. In 1 John 3.3, 3, we are going to see that one of the things God uses to purify the believer is hope. And so what we're going to see here is this cherubim as it's in front of the garden with this flaming sword. When man looks at it, they are to see hope. So let's read 1 John 3.3. 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us that so we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us, that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are children now, and that we shall be as we as not yet appeared but we will know when He appears. We will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. One of the things we, in the beauty of the Christian walk is this concept of hope. 
the unsaved version of hope is I just hope that this happens. Like some of us, we hope that the Packers win. We don't know if they're going to win, we just hope they are. All right? That is not biblical hope. All right? Biblical hope is a hope that, as I would call it, I'd like to have us understand, it is a supernatural hope. This is not a hope that just you have naturally. This is a supernatural gift from God that comes from when you are saved. Because you start to hope in the promises of God. As you hope in the promises of God, you, your hope says, I believe what He says. That's why we call people who are saved believers. Because what do they do? They believe in what God had said. And they, their hope then is anchored in what God has said. So if God says it, I believe it, and my hope is in what He has said. Unbelievers do not hope in God. What do unbelievers do? Run from God. They run away. They have no hope in Him because they do not believe that He is anyone to hope in. And it's interesting here, the hope of the redeemed and the hope of a redeemer is what I believe are a reminder to Adam and Eve when they see the cherubim there. That one day, a redeemer will come. One day, because remember Genesis 3.15, one day someone is going to come and going to crush the serpent's head. His heel will be bruised, but that ultimate blow will happen. And when they see the cherubim there with the flaming sword turning to and fro, I, I see that what we see here in this text is an Adam and Eve as a visual reminder of them that one day a Redeemer will come. One day a Redeemer will come that will go through the veil there, will go through that to bring us back to God. So how does hope sanctify and purify the believer like John 3.3 tells us? Hope sanctifies it because even though you may go, the Redeemer did not come today, what does the biblical hope tell us? Maybe tomorrow. I think we see this, and one of the beautiful things we see in the Passover meal that the Israelite people would do, what they would do is at the end of it, they would end next year in Jerusalem. And there was even a part of it where they would go to see if Elijah had come yet, so they send a kid out to see if Elijah's there and he's not there yet. But the beautiful thing is we do know what? Elijah has come and we will be together one day. And so our hope is in Christ. But our hope is in Christ because we can see what's going on around us. And even though not everything has been made new, we have the hope that one day it will be made new. And so, as we hope in Christ, it sanctifies and purifies us by keeping our eyes on what really matters. So to give you an example, I would say, so how does this play out? Now, this is pure biblical speculation. This is how I see things like this playing out. Adam, out all day, sweating, the sweat of his face. You know, I see him wiping his brow off. He comes back in, and Adam and Eve have a conversation. And Eve goes, what'd you do today? And he said, I've been weeding all day. And on top of that, I think something's eating the tomatoes. All right, and Eve, and Eve says something about her day that is just the heartache and sorrow. She may say, you don't even want to know what Cain and Abel are up to today, all right? You know, and you get all of these things, that the wrestle through it all. But the reminder then is the reminder that we all go through that one day a Redeemer will come. And we get the joy one day the Redeemer has come, and what has He promised? He will come again. And just like He promised He did come the first time, the second time is just as secure as the first time. And so our hope, we do not look at this earth because if Adam was like, hey, I'm eventually going to make this ground produce for me, we were just going to find out. This is going to be a battle that's literally going to kill him. 
But when he looks at the cherubim, instead of seeing heartache and sorrow and evil, he goes, one day a Redeemer is going to come and make way back. And this is what we look and say, we see the Redeemer has come, but what do we see? The beauty of yet to come. That's why we look, and that's why I believe Christian hope reminds us that this world is not our home, we're literally passing through. And as we start to have the eyes of Christian hope, we start to see the things around us that even though things seem pretty bad, I mean, let's look at the text here. You're driven from the garden away to literally go out and work the ground you're going to die, and you turn over and you go, there's a cherubim that is there with a flaming sword. None of us would go, woohoo, things are going well for humanity right now. But are they? Yes, they are, because God has promised. And what we're going to see, which is interesting, when Eve gives, which I'm a little trailer alert or whatever you want to call it, spoiler alert for next week. When Eve gives birth to her children, she is going to say, this is the one. And guess what we're going to find out? Not the one, but the one is what? It's coming. And generation after generation after generation is going to long for that. Because they have biblical hope. So your biblical hope now that Christ has come is do we long for the day that we are together with him? And does that longing cause us to share the gospel with every single person we meet? Does that longing cause us to say, I've got some good news, let alone great news to share with you? Because that is the hope we have for this world. That yes, you're going to have situations, relationships are going to be terrible, your marriage is going to be terrible, you will have kids that will go after the things of this world and break your heart, and I can just keep listing, we can go on and on. Some of you are going to be widows at early ages, some of you are going to be widows, and we can just keep going, and we can just keep listing all of the woes, right? But what is the only hope in life and death? Christ. That one day He will come, and that oh, the wrong seems all so strong, our response is that God is a ruler yet, and He is at sovereignly working all these things for your good and His glory. And so when we look at these things, and what can be seen by some as a, man, that seems like God's driving man out of the garden, all these other things, I really do believe as we read these things, we are to see that God is doing this because He knows that man will turn and cry out, Redeemer, we need help. And that is the cry of the gospel. That is the cry of the redeemed, helpless Lord. And in doing this, he is creating what I believe a beautiful picture for all of time, how he is redeeming. It's interesting, and I would encourage you, if you have a chance, on Sundays at 9 o'clock, we're going to be going through a lot of different Sunday school topics. And it's interesting, if you even want to follow this theme of the angelic cherubim, showing up with swords and everything else. There's some beautiful pictures all the way through the Bible. I'll even just give you a little glimpse of it. Before Israel is to enter into the promised land, remember the promised land was Eden-esque speaking, land flowing with milk and honey. Who is standing in front of the entrance that Joshua interacts with? An angel with a sword, a type of Christ pointing us, and we see the beauty of these things throughout all of Scripture. This is not just an isolated incident that we're going to see it all the way through. And we see these things, and what it does is it causes us to say, remember, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To Him be the glory for it all. And there's so much beauty in Scripture that we just miss. And my prayer is as we walk through this together that we will see Him as He truly is, that great Redeemer. We're going to sing now a song that there is one gospel. And as we sing about that, we do not have to wonder, are there other Gospels? The answer is no, there is one Gospel, and that's Jesus Christ. 
And so I'm going to pray, and then let's just stand boldly and sing about the gospel of Christ. Dearly Father, help us now. Help us to remember that these things we read in the text are a reminder of the beauty of who you are. When we see our own heart and we see how prone we are to wander, may we 